I'll be reading from Psalm 51, verses 1 through 12. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquities and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore me to the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. I hope that's a continual prayer for our hearts and for our life in Christ as we choose to follow Him and live a life that turns to Him, repentant, needing a Savior, thanking God that He washes us whiter than snow. Because that's the truth. And we can live in freedom. And we can live refreshed. And we can live clean, because that's our God. And we praise God for that. Amen? Ernest Hemingway, who many of you know, a famous writer, he actually was raised in a solid evangelical home. He knew the Lord. He was raised up in Oak Park, Illinois, and his, his grandparents were part of Wheaton College that had a foundation of of godliness and biblical teaching. His grandfather, Anson Hemingway, was a good, good friend of D.L. Moody, the great evangelist. His father, actually, who was a physician, wanted to be a missionary doctor and go spend his life serving God out in the field. He grew up in the church. He gave his money to the church. He tithed his Allowance. He sang in the choir. He read the entire King James Bible and actually took an exam on it and passed with flying colors about what all the books meant and what they were about. After high school, he moved to Kansas City. He became a reporter there. And here's where the shift happened. He left everything that he knew, his family, his godly heritage, and he chose to go after what he wanted to go after. And the drift began. He enlisted in World War I, and he was wounded in World War I, and then he took up drinking to ease the pain. One time when he came home, he offered his sister a drink, and his sister said, absolutely not, I won't have anything to drink. And he told her this, don't be afraid, sister, to taste all of what the world has to offer, just because Oak Park has labeled it sinful or off-limits. 
He ended up marrying a woman who had nothing to do with God. He moved to Paris and wrote there in Paris and ended up going deeper and deeper into a dark place separate from God. He would go through four wives. He became notorious for his drunkenness. And in his late years, he actually grew distant from everybody. He hardly could even stand straight. He wouldn't communicate with people verbally. A good friend said this, Every hour was filled with the pain of being truly lost and alone. And listen to Hemingway's description of himself towards the end of his life. I live in a vacuum that is as lonely as a radio tube when the batteries are dead and there is no current to the plug. A life that began with God and then a man who chose to leave everything that he had in the Lord and with his family and his support system. And so on a Sunday morning, a beautiful Sunday morning, sunny At age 61, Ernest Hemingway took a shotgun in Idaho, and he killed himself. The story is similar to the departure of Judah, son of a godly heritage. Jacob, who is Israel, the father of the nations, the tribes. And we're going to look this morning at the journey of Judah and his descent The difference is, we will see with Judah, is that there does come a point where he realizes that his descent has taken him to a deep, deep, dark place. And we see a turning in his life. But a descent that takes him away from God. So let's look at Genesis 38. And I just want to share the story with you. I'm not going to read it verse for verse. I'm going to read some of it, but I want to share the story with you. Chapter 38 of Genesis. At that time, Judah left his brothers, and he went down to an area of Canaan. And what he did there is he saw a beautiful woman, a Canaanite woman, and he married her. And he married this woman, and they had three sons. And their names were Ur and Onan and Shelah. And Judah went out to go find a wife for his oldest son. And he found one in the Canaanite culture, and her name was Tamar. And he brought her to his son. And it's interesting what the scriptures say, verse 7, But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, and so the Lord put him to death. That's how wicked he was. Now the responsibility in the family was that if the husband dies... Then if there is a brother, the brother's responsibility would be to provide an heir for the wife. And so Judah said to Onan, I want you to be with Tamar and to provide offspring. But he chose not to have full relations with her. And therefore no offspring came from that relationship. And God saw that as wicked, and so he killed Onan. So Tamar is left without husbands, without an heir, without anybody to take care of her. And Judah says, the father-in-law Judah, 
says, listen, my son Shelah, he's not quite of age yet, but you go to your family, and then when he's ready, we'll, we'll set up the arrangement so that you can be with him. He had no intention of doing so. So the time had come when Shelah had grown up, and Tamar started to realize Judah's not giving me his son. And at this time also, Judah's wife had died. And they're during the time of the shearing of the goats, and so Judah goes out to be shearing the goats, and Tamar realizes, I have to somehow find an heir. I have to somehow be cared for. And so she gets out of her grieving clothes, puts on clothes of a prostitute, goes at the gate of the temple area, and Judah comes walking by, and he wants a prostitute for the night. And so he calls out to Tamar. And she says, what will you give me that we might have an arrangement here since you're not quite going to give me your, your sheep? He says, what do you want? He says, well, she says, well, I want, I want your signet ring and your cords and your staff. And we'll hold that as credit until you pay me. And so he willingly gives that to her. She becomes pregnant through this union. It's found out, it's found out later that she is pregnant through prostitution. And so then Judah goes, ah, well bring her in and let's burn her, let's kill her. Let's get rid of her. That would be an easy fix. And she says, bring to Judah this ring and this cords and the staff. And this is by the man who I am with child. And Judah recognizes them very clearly. And he says this, Oh, Tamar is much more righteous than I. And he did not lie with her again. And out of this union comes twins that are born. And out of this union will come the line of Christ through that son that was born to Judah and Tamar named Perez. And this is the story of Genesis 38. This is Judah's descent, a story that started to get away from God. And one of the things when you read this story, you have to ask the question, well, why in the world <clears throat> is this story here? It's, it's airing dirty laundry, isn't it? I mean, this is family business. These are things you typically try to cover up. You know one of the reasons that we know that the Bible is, is not just man writing the Bible? Because you, you would not write about this stuff. This is what God wants us to know. Don't forget that. This is what God wants us to know about the history of Jacob, of Israel, and how God stepped into the middle of the mess just like he does in our life. This is God's word to us to realize. This story is written, I believe, as a reminder, Genesis 37.2 says, this is the account of Jacob. Again, this is God's people, Israel. Here is the account of my people. I want you to know it. I think another reason that Genesis 38 is given to us, right in the middle, it kind of breaks up the life of Joseph, this upright man. It's given, I think, to show us a real need for the people of Israel 
to go and be in Egypt in slavery. You've got to understand something. The Israelites were absolutely immersed and involved and engaged with the Canaanite culture. And it was picking them off one by one. They were dying in the pit. And sometimes you go, why in the world would God allow Israel to go to Egypt and be slaves all those years? It's God's grace. I will preserve my people. And if you know what happened in Egypt, they were set apart under themselves. Yeah, they did slavery. But they got to become a nation unto themselves and learn to depend on God. And they were taken out of a place of absolute hell, truly, where they were immersed in Canaanite culture. And I think the other reason is it really does show the contrast of chapter 39 and 38. 39, we see Joseph, who is tempted, who is drawn in by Potiphar's wife, and yet he chooses righteousness. And so I think the chapter there is to bring to light the difference and the opportunity to choose. Choose to live for ourselves or choose to live for God. You know, it's an amazing story as you read it. And again, you go, my goodness, what a, what a mess. What an what a awful choice of life. God, what, what are you showing us in this? I think this passage brings us to a place that reminds us, the story is not just about Judah, not just about the people of Israel. The story is about us. Us. That we are fallen sinners in need of a holy God. That psalm that I had Greg read is a constant reminder. Lord, forgive me for my sin. Wash me. Lord, restore these bones that are broken. Cleanse me with hyssop. Make me white. It's about us. We fall short. We need a Savior. And that truly we would look at ourselves, each and every one of us as followers of Christ, that we would look at ourselves and say, Oh God, show me if there's any way in me that is not of you, that is not living out the life of Christ in my life. Psalm, Psalms 51 speaks of that. Here's Isaiah 53. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, and each of us has turned his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, that is our Savior, Jesus Christ, the iniquity of us all. Praise God that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sin. And as we celebrated last week, praise God that he has risen from the dead. And then he gives life to each and every one of us who would call upon his name. Lord, be my Savior because I need you. Sin is on us all. How did Judah, raised up in this great family, raised up with a heritage of godliness, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the forefathers, the foundation of of spirituality, of life in God. How did he get here? The descent of Judah. 
The scriptures say in the beginning of 38, Judah left. Judah left. And I think that's often the case for us. We're, we're looking for greener grass. Our eyes are, are drawn to Canaan. The lights of Las Vegas seem awfully appealing at night. And then you wake up in the morning and you walk out on the street and you just go, oh my gosh, yuck. All the cards that they try to pass out to you, they're all on the streets. But for some reason at nighttime, we're drawn to the lights. So we leave, thinking the lights will be nice. You know, he might have left because Jacob was kind of a wreck over the apparent death of Joseph. And he really was falling apart. And he might have just been fed up with that. He might have been tired of following God. You ever get to that place? He might have been tired of, of the people of God. and It just didn't seem fun. It didn't seem like this was the way it should be. And so he left the people of God. You know, I've had, I've had lots of people in my life who, especially men, who tell me, Oh, I worship God in the mountains. That's my place of worship. I don't need to go to church. I don't need to be in fellowship. I go into the mountains. That's, that's the biggest lie there is. That's not what God has for you. And if God's speaking to you in the mountains, I'll tell you what he's saying. He's saying, get to church. He is. Do not forsake the gathering, dear brothers. We are built for relationship with each other. Not for the tree. Truly. Go enjoy your time in the mountains after church. But you, you see the subtle drift? We start to say these things. And it may not be the mountains. It may be somewhere else. But we start to drift away. Judah left. <clears throat> and I think one of the things, you know, as you read this story, as parents, it's a, it's a little bit, it goads us a little bit, going, boy, you know, maybe if we had raised our kids better. At least it should challenge us to that, I think. I think, if anything, it should say, hey, are you bringing truth to your children? Are you continuing to train them up in righteousness? Lay a foundation for them. The other side of that is, is that children are going to make choices of their own. They grow up and they become adults and they get to choose if they're going to follow God or not. You could be the best parents in the world and they can turn out to be an absolute wreck. There's no, there's no grandchildren to God, just children. But our part, I think, as parents is that we're raising them up in righteousness and then we trust God for the rest. Actually, we beg God for our children. It is a reminder let us raise our children in the Lord. But I think the beginning was Judah's choice. Heck with you, Dad. Heck with you, God. I am going to leave. And that's where the descent began. Have you ever left before? Have you in this spiritual journey of yours left? Maybe right now you're in the land of Canaan. And I just pray that you would hear the voice of God this morning saying, return home. These lights of Vegas that you're being drawn to, it's nothing but death. Judah left. He thought it would be good. It was the beginning of the descent. <clears throat> then Judah, verse 2, marries a Canaanite woman. This is the next step. His life, his friendships, were absolutely influenced by Canaanite culture. The reality is who we spend time with begins to shape us. It begins to mold us. 
Do not be misled, the scriptures teach. Bad company corrupts good character. I was raised in a godly home. My father was a preacher, still is to this day. My mother is one of the most godly women you will ever meet. I had a foundation that was rock solid. Yet in high school, which was in Half Moon Bay, California, I was surrounded by all kinds of friends. Not one of them had a relationship with Jesus. My church was in Palo Alto, California, which was 45 minutes away. So my support system was my friends from school. And so guess what happened to Rod Ritchie, raised up in a godly family? Rod Ritchie wanted to fit in. Rod Ritchie was drawn to what his buddies were doing. And so I did all those things. All those things that you beg God your children don't do, I did. Not because I wanted to rebel against my parents. Not because I was rebelling against God. I just wanted to fit in. I wanted to have popularity. And I wanted to sin. Because I was surrounded by that. And it really did start to take over in my life as a young man. Who we hang with shapes our character. If we're going to hang with a Canaanite culture, we will become like them. It doesn't matter what kind of godly heritage you have. It starts to take over. And I wasn't strong enough as a young man to say, no, this isn't right. I just wasn't at that place. I don't know too many high schoolers, honestly, that are. There are some. I praise God our school is raising up a lot of them. They're able to stand firm. But I wasn't. And then I had the privilege of going to Westmont College, and my whole life honestly radically changed. All of a sudden, I was immersed in this culture of 1,200 college students who, for the most part, all loved Jesus. Man, what a whole different life that was. A life where I could learn and grow and and that it was good and healthy to, to do and live out Christ's life, that I actually would belong and be part of a community that was godly. Changed my life. And God got a hold of me and started to move me towards ministry. And I think a big part of that, obviously God's work in my life, but God blessed me with people who were of godly character. So the guardian for all of us and the guardian for our children is who are you hanging with? We need to watch in ourselves. And who is really being the influence? Let's not lie to ourselves. Like, oh, I've got it under control. Let's be honest. If they are starting to influence us more than we would like. And if some really nice kids that your kids hang out with, they're nice kids, but boy, their influence is strong upon your children. There's a guardian upon that. Love those people, but we need to guard the time. Because trust me, it will damage your children like it damaged me. Who are you hanging with? Then he, he again, has children out of this. Ur and Onan and Shelah is totally immersed. And there was obviously no upbringing in this relationship at all because... We find in, in verse 7 that they were so wicked, especially Ur, evil Ur. He was so wicked. It, the Bible doesn't tell us, does it, what, what happened? Why was he so wicked? We don't know. We just know he was wicked. 
And God took him out of the picture. And you read that and you go, wait a second, God. Wait, wait a second, loving God. Wait a second, gracious God. How dare you take out someone like that? What if he was going to come to know you? Isn't a God who knows us to the core? Isn't a God who knows our hearts? I think he knew to the core who Ur was and who he was going to be. And he would have had nothing to do with God. And that his wickedness was going to do more destruction than anybody could take. And God took him out of the picture. Listen to this carefully. Grace. Grace never negates God's holiness. And his holiness does not nullify his grace. Did you forget that we serve a holy God? Why is it that we get in this mode that there will be no judgment upon mankind, upon us? Why do you think we need a Savior? Because we cannot stand before holy God alone. We need a Savior who will stand for us, and he will actually see Jesus in us as God decides. Are you my child or not? There will come judgment. We have a holy God. That's why Romans 5 says, For the wages of sin is death. But holiness never negates grace. And we're going to see that in this story. It's Christ who pays the sin price for our sin. Judah's life he has left and he has immersed himself in the culture and the decline goes deeper. His wife dies. He's, he's forgotten God. He goes to instant gratification to the temple prostitute, he thinks. He doesn't know it's Tamar at the time. Hey, you know, one of the things I was thinking was, how did Tamar, how did Tamar know to go out there and that Judah would come by? You ever think about that? I think that it was known of Judah's reputation and how he lived his life. That it was a normal visit for Judah to go grab a temple prostitute. It was sure was the thing to do in the culture. And I think women didn't have any right to say, no, don't do that. And so I think it was part of Judah's life. Sin had really become the norm. And he goes by and he calls her out just like you call a taxi cab almost. Do you understand how, how, how there's, no, there's no shame anymore? Sin takes you to a place that you, that you never want to go. It takes you further than you ever long to be. And then sometimes you get stuck there. We actually, we, just, we went to San Francisco over spring break. And the same thing happened to the, the youth group. We got stuck. We couldn't come back. Snow over Donner Pass. You're going, wait, I just wanted to go there for a little bit. I wanted to come back. But that's what sin does. You think you can always come back? Uh Uh-uh. It starts to take over your life. Judah had gotten to a place. It had taken over his life. Oh, yeah, just grab a temple prostitute. What's the big deal? I I want to pause here for a minute. Because I want to remind us that this story is a contrast to chapter 39. And the choice that Joseph makes with Potiphar's wife, where he chooses 
to stand for God and to live in righteousness. Because here's the reality for each and every one of us. We have an opportunity to make a choice. Not to sin. Not to fall into the trap. Not to to go and just grab a temple prostitute. We have a choice. And we especially have the power because we are followers of Jesus Christ and the resurrected power of Jesus Christ dwells within us and through the power of the Holy Spirit we can choose righteousness. Here's the promise of our Lord. There is no temptation, Corinthians 10.13, that has seized you except that which is common to man. And God is faithful, not you. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. The load won't be so great that you can't get out. But when you are tempted, and trust me, you will be in this broken world of ours, He will also, listen to this, He will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Each and every one of you, God has provided a way out. Are you being tempted right now and you're just feeling like, oh my gosh, I have to get into it. I don't know how to resist. Then you fall flat on your face to God and you say, God, help. You have promised me you provide a way out. I really want to commit adultery. Help. Help. He provides a way out. It's found out, as Tamar is found to be pregnant, and again, Judah says, let's kill her. I want a way out of this situation. Sin is exposed. This is the Tiger Woods story of biblical times. Is it not? Is it not? You know, as interesting as you follow the paper, I mean, the headlines are all eyes are on Tiger Woods. All eyes. And it's true, isn't it? The ratings have never been so high ever in the history of golf on his sin. He is exposed. And what it was, I think, for Judah was this wake-up call. It was a smack in the face. We thought we could get away with our sin, but God will not let us. God will not let us. You know what? He won't let us, especially as followers of Jesus Christ. Do you understand that? You think you can sin and go down that path. God will not let that stay hidden. That's because of his grace. That's because he wants to give you an opportunity to turn back to him. He wants you to be broken and understand your need for a savior and that your path that you're on is nothing but destruction. God will not let you go unexposed. And so let's stop pretending that we can And let's turn to God and say, God, I want to live in righteousness. You see, where does grace come in the story? Judah and Tamar's actions deserve death, don't they? You have sinned against God. Your actions deserve death because I am holy God. My grace has come upon you because I'm not taking you out of the picture. And actually, I'm going to fulfill my covenant with the people of Israel through you. It offers an opportunity to repent of our ways. Judah is broken. Tamar is more righteous than I am. 
Inasmuch as I did not give her to my son, Shelah, and he did not have relations with her again, the Bible says. He really becomes aware of his evil behavior. It's not that Tamar's actions were righteous. Oh yeah, it's good to be a temple prostitute. No, he's not saying that. She is viewed, though, in thinking of, this is what is appropriate. I need to have an heir. But Judah gets to this place where I think he is woken up by God through his exposed sin. And it says, she is more righteous than I am. My sin has gotten to such a dark place. And in comparison to what she did, oh my goodness, she's much more righteous than me. It's Psalm 51. I slept with Bathsheba, David says. God, forgive me. I want to turn. And I believe that Judah turned. The verse that says he did not lie with her again, I think his action saying, I'm not going to take these steps again. There's a turning and there's action that goes with that. And I believe he repents before God. This is where he differs from Hemingway. He began that descent. He walked away from godly heritage. He entered into the culture. But he finally came to a place of being aware of his sin and how destructive it was. And he turned. There is a call to repentance for all of us. If we claim to be without sin, 1 John says, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and he is just and he will forgive us our sins and he will purify us from all unrighteousness. That's what God does in our lives. Hey, Peter, I don't need to wash all of you. The reality is on your journey of life, you are going to gather up the dust of sin on your feet. And because I love you, I'm going to wash that. And so that beautiful moment in the upper room of humility and of service, but also a cleansing. I wash your feet. Jesus is the only one who can. He's the only one who can forgive us. And so I want to encourage you, dear body, that you would repent, that you would say to God, God, forgive me. I have sinned against you alone, O God. You know what the promise of God is? I forgive you. You know what the promises of God is? I don't remember your sin. Why do you keep bringing it up? We dealt with that. You are washed. You are pure as snow. You have my son living within you. You are my child. Let's move on in righteousness. Let us all think about repentance. And I think Judah does. In Genesis 44, we see that he stands before Joseph. He doesn't know yet who Joseph is. He thinks he's the high commander, second to Pharaoh. And he's about to take Benjamin, the youngest brother Joseph is, and keep him as a slave. And it's Judah in Genesis 44 who stands up and says, oh, this would do incredible damage to my father Jacob. Take me instead, that I would take the place of Benjamin, so that this incredible grief would not come upon my father. It would be too much. I think he turned and started to trust in God and live for God. This story is about grace upon grace. 
and there were twins in her womb. Remember, God's holiness does not nullify his grace. His grace overcomes the sin of Judah and Tamar, and Perez is born. Out of this ugly web of sin comes the line of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And you go, you've got to be kidding. It's got to come from Joseph. Lord, this isn't right. Joseph's the upright one. This doesn't make sense. How strange that you wouldn't choose Joseph. But it's not strange and it's not a mistake that God made. But that his power over sin would be revealed in mankind. And you know how even more so grace is poured out? This lineage and the woman in the lineage. Do you understand? The whole New Testament begins with this lineage of sinners. And a Messiah comes out. And not only that, women. Women are labeled. Never happens. You wouldn't want to tell that story about the women. You don't even mention them. They're of no value. But God wants to tell the story. Yeah, you know what? I came from Tamar. I came from Ruth, the Moabitess. I came from Rahab, the prostitute. I came from Bathsheba, who was involved in the relationship with King David. That's where I come from. And in all those sinful women and sinful heritage, so are we that Christ would come in to our lives and defeat sin, grace upon grace. And that we have a God who forgives us. That we have a God who takes this story and shows us, you know what? We cannot be presumptuous to think for a moment that we wouldn't do what Judah did. You better get over yourselves real quick if you think you can't fall like that. And it brings us to a place that challenges despair. Do you hear that? It challenges despair. Do you feel like there's no hope? Do you feel like you've sinned too much? What God says is, come to me, dear child, and let me wash you white as snow. This is why my son has come, so that you might have life. 